have a guest speaker today, and he is a good buddy of mine. His name is Brian Harris, and many of you have already met Brian. He's been worshiping with our family here for uh, weeks now. Uh, Brian and I went to high school together, and then we went to college together. I was like, dude, are you following me? And he's like, no, I'm going to go blaze some new trails. He went off, did some youth ministry for a long time, was a missionary in West Africa for a little while. I think he's going to mention that a little bit later. And then came back into some preaching ministry up in uh, Illinois. He's been doing a lot of stuff, but right now... We can call him a distinguished U.S. Air Force chaplain. Uh, he's here in Wilmington for just three months. He's between uh, waiting for his next assignment, and he's here with his wife working at the hospital. And so, uh, Brian, if you want to come on up. I love Brian. He's a good, dear buddy of mine. He's whooping my butt into shape, uh, trying to be my personal trainer while he's here. Look at this guy. He's jacked. Um, give it up for my boy, Brian Harris. Hey, thank you, Chris. Thanks, man. Uh, you know, I've known Chris, like you said, for many years, and... Um, Honestly, I've always been very grateful for his friendship. Um, there were some pretty dark times in my life that he, probably unbeknownst to him, uh, had a huge influence in pulling me out of and helping me kind of figure some things out. I have no doubt that if it was not for his influence in my life, I would not be where I am in my Christian faith or in ministry. And so um, I, I can't say this enough about him, but he, I've never seen him not exude grace. And uh, I feel like that's about the best thing you can say about somebody. Um, so take that for what it is, but I have an enormous amount of respect for him um, and tr- truly love him and his family. You know, uh, interesting, I was just thinking about this. Um, I think I look like I'm 18. This has nothing to do with the sermon, but I'll, when I look at Silas, I think we look like we're the same age. <laughs> and then I know I'm like, that can't be the case, though, because people like that are his age talk to him and they don't talk to me. So, you know, it's like, it can't, can't be true. But man, we have grown, haven't we? We've, we've aged, Chris. Yeah. I have to shave so you know that uh, you can't see the insecurity of my lack of beard. Uh, it just doesn't happen. And so, anyway. Um, you know, I don't feel like my life has been that unique. I feel like it's been pretty average. Uh, that's just kind of how it feels. Uh, Chris asked me what to preach about. And he's like, Brian, your life has been so unique. Just kind of think, you know, what has God showed you in your experience? And I'm like, it's not really, you know, I feel like it's pretty average life. You know, like... I was a devout Catholic until I was 19. Uh, then I, w- I was baptized at, uh, when I was in school, actually, uh, to do ministry, Mid-Atlantic Christian University, at October cold waters. One in the morning, a septic line blew into the river, and that was the moment I came to faith. And so that was where I went into this stinky, cold river, but by the grace of God, I came out clean through faith. And so a very fortunate event. But from there, I went on to do some missionary work in Indonesia for a few months. And then I went to Ghana, Africa for a few months. I did a, a survey trip in Burkina Faso. Does anybody know where that country is? Like four of y'all. It's cool. Yeah. So it's a really weird, small, like poorest country in the world, literally. And so um, we did a survey trip there. And then I came back and I did nine years of youth ministry in three different churches. And then I went, uh, I did a year of travel preaching. Uh, most of it was raising supports to go to Cameroon where we were for uh, two years. If you don't know where that is, if you can make Africa with your hand, it's like right where your thumbs meet. Right, so that's where Cameroon is, um, and it's it was it was a very very good ministry. We ran a school for underprivileged kids, where I acted as the principal. I say acted, right? Um, and so I was the principal of the school, and then also we ran a gym where we trained uh, around fifty people a day in working out and eating correctly, and then we would do devotions and prayers with them. And it was a great outreach to the community as they became a part of this gym. And us, me, my wife, and our partners would train these people. Um, 
We preached in villages on the weekends, on the mornings, and we preached in a house church in the evenings. Uh, and our school was threatened to be blown up, and we had to deal with that. Uh, and we, we, you know, we had a lot of different adventures dealing with the government. Um, the school also almost shut down because I'm so bad at singing. That's a true story. Um, and so I'm not exaggerating at all. We had to sing the Cameroonian national anthem, and I was the only one there to lead it. And I, if you don't know, I am tone deaf. And so I start singing it, but we live in, the school is located in the government residential area. And so the government officials are walking to work, hearing me butcher their song. And they actually sent it like, like to come get me. They're like, hey, we need to talk to you. And I'm like, this is kind of weird. And they're like, Brian, uh, we are going to shut your school down if you lead them in that song again. You are not allowed. That is a disgrace to the country. And so, you know, we had to find a local Cameroonian to sing the song well because I didn't, I couldn't do it. And so um, then we went from there after this, this, this terrorist activity starts to take place in Cameroon and the civil war starts to begin. And I take a a ministry in Southern Illinois where I preach uh, for about four years. And in that process, I start, I meet this army chaplain. And he's like, hey, you ought to be a chaplain. And I'm like, why? And anyway, make a long story short, I get a Master of Divinity studying church history so I can become an Air Force chaplain, which I am today. And I act as a rep- as your representative. Listen, understand, we have a unique relationship. I am your representative to the United States government. Right? And the way that works is, in order to be an Air Force chaplain, you have to have a group of churches say, this guy is, uh, has integrity. He, he, he believes the right doctrines. Uh, he has the right experiences. He has the right skills. And venture is a part of that body of churches that has told the government that that is true. Do you understand? So I am your representative in a very unique way. We have a very unique relationship. Uh, and so, uh, like I said, I feel like my life is just kind of average. I mean, does it, does it sound that way? And so, uh, but it's because of this kind of unique journey that Chris has asked if I would speak about what I believe to be the most important thing in Christianity. Could you ask for a more difficult topic? The most important, I mean, doesn't that change according to the context? Certainly, sometimes in your life, this was very important, and then something else comes and you realize, no, this is actually more important. We were, you know, we've been all over the place. The last 10 months, we were in, um, uh, we were in Illinois, we were in Miami, we were in Oklahoma City, we were in Texas, we lived for a little bit, we were in Seattle, Washington, we saw the Golden Gate Bridge, Mount Rushmore, the Badlands of South Dakota, the Grand Canyon. I mean, we, we, this is just the last 10 months we've been kind of traveling all over the place. Some of it was Air Force related, some of it was nurse related. And um, there's just been a lot of things that, that, that have taken place uh, that have brought us from here to there. But while we were in Seattle, we were in, uh, at Mount, Mount Rainier, if you guys have been there. It's kind of a big mountain. People, that's what people say about it, at least. And uh, there's these, like, trails, you know, all over the place. And we were decided we're going to do this family gathering, kind of spend some, some family time together, right? That's the priority. That's what's important to us. And we, we still value that very, very much. Um, and so we, we find this loop. It says half a mile loop to a waterfall. And... We're like, all right, our kids, we got three kids, Zeal, Bria, and Elias, six, five, and two. And I put my son Elias on my back as we get ready to, you know, make this half a mile loop to this waterfall. And um, about three miles in, we realize something is wrong. Um, it's about an hour and a half of hiking up and down these mountainous terrain. And Zeal and Bria rightfully so say, hey, uh, we're tired. And um, this is no longer fun for us. And so I get down on one knee 
And I look zeal directly in the eyes. I say, baby, we're no longer hiking for fun. We're hiking for survival. Um, because our prior, we, we didn't know where we were. We just knew we had to get it out of there. And there was snow everywhere. We didn't have any food or water because we thought it was only going to be a half a mile hike. And we don't know what went wrong. But our priorities shiftly, quickly changed. No longer was family time the most important thing, but family survival was, right? And so the context of the situation often changes what is important. Uh, but so I'm going to tell you, though, as I reflect upon my life, what I believe to be the most important thing to the Christian faith, are you ready? Drum roll. It's theology. Crickets. I see you guys already excited about this. Now, you might need some convincing, so let me get you there. Um, I mean, to simply break the word down, it means a study of God. What could be of a greater self-sacrifice, a greater nobler cause than to study your life trying to understand God. I mean, isn't it the foundation of all that we do? The more we know God, the more in tune we can be with his work. I was recently reading an old Facebook post. And in this Facebook post, I was kind of reiterating a conversation I had with my wife. She was going to go to the store uh, to get, I think, Wendy's, get some fast food for me. And she says, hey, Brian, what do you want? And I said, uh, JL, um, that, that's her name. I don't know if I mentioned that. Uh, I said, JL, um, get me whatever, just don't get me a junior burger. And you might be like, you know, why is that a big deal? Well, because I require more beef than a junior burger. Uh, I eat beef and the servings of eight ounces. And if it is not at least half a pound, don't bring that to me because I'm going to require more than that. And uh, she's, you know, she says, um, Brian, I would never get you a junior burger. And I, and I think that's a big deal. That was how the conversation went. And as I told her about this conversation, she looked at me and she says, Brian, I would still never get you a junior burger. And it just touches me so deeply. I, just, I love her so much. I love her so much. But she knows me. And because she knows me, she knows how to work with, with me. And she knows what things are going to make me mad. And she knows what things are not. And she knows how to satisfy me by getting me at least serving sizes of eight ounces of beef. And so... I mean, I'm very, very blessed, but this is kind of how theology goes. The more we know God, the more we understand him, the more we, we can even respond to his work in our life. But this doesn't take place unless we know him, right? And some say, oh, I hate theology, but I love Jesus. But get this, the love of Jesus is good theology. Guess what? So is the love of others. That's, that's just good theology. It should, those things should be taking place. We study God through his scriptures and we get to learn of God's plan to save us from the moment sin happens, right? The moment man sins, the proto-euangelion is told to be coming, right? The proto mean first, euangelion meaning gospel. The first gospel is a good theological term. I figured I'd let you guys uh, learn if you haven't heard it already. But in Genesis 3.15, he lets us know that God has this plan to crush Satan, to, to right the world of all that is wrong in it. And this is all discovered, this hope that we have through theology. And aren't we glad it is? So there it is, the most important thing. But alas, theology is not always described as that, is it? No, no, no. Corrupt man has taken something so beautiful, so noble, and made it somehow non-Christian. And I say that because good theology teaches unity in a very massive scale. Maybe such a massive scale that many of us are even uncomfortable with how, how much unity should be a part of the Christian faith. And yet, 
Theology has become the banner of division. And theology, disgust, is often just to boast of someone's superior intelligence and recollection. It often reeks of arrogance. And it is impossible to be molded by God into his kingdom person and be arrogant. Impossible. And actually, Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 8. He says, we know that all possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know, right? That's a little wordy. If anyone thinks he knows something, he doesn't know as he ought to know, right? This is this is idea of arrogance, right? If you, think, uh, if you think Christianity is all about having the right answers to the right questions, you have missed the point. It's not about that. It is off base. And because it is impossible to be arrogant about what you know about God and know God. As a matter of fact, knowing God naturally creates a humble spirit and humility. Humility must be the first step in approaching God, in knowing God. And this is exactly what often sufferings of the world teach us. You know, why are we often forced to deal with such difficulties in the world? It's because, yeah, bro, you can't do it alone. You do need God. You do need somebody to depend on. You do need humility. You do need help. Around the 300s, uh, we see there's a, historically there's a bunch of monasteries that start kind of popping up. And these monks of these monasteries were very select on who could be a part of the monastery. Uh, a matter of fact, the first thing you had to do is you, they called it renunciation. You had to renounce everything. You were not allowed to have any possessions. You couldn't own anything. Uh, you also had to get rid of all your relationships with everyone. You couldn't have any relationships. And after not having any possessions, not having any relationships, you then have to sit outside the monastery for 10 days and fast. And every time a monk walks by, you have to come by and embrace their knees. And you're like, why all of this? Well, because in order to become a part of the monastery, you had to completely get rid of your opinion of yourself. You had to be humble because you cannot approach God and you cannot approach a desire to serve God without a complete spirit of humility. Because every part of you that you think is something that is a part you're not going to let Jesus transform. Every part of you that you think is something is a part you're not going to let Jesus transform. See, Jesus has bigger plans for you than you know. And all of those plans are stifled because of our arrogance, because we think we know or because we think we are something greater than we actually are. And it is because of that that theology often gets destroyed. And it's because of that so do our lives. Because they reek often of arrogance. But I promise, and this is a bit of a side note, Jesus has larger plans for your life than you could imagine. So theology, although very, very valuable, it kind of misses the mark of what is the most important. So able to be corrupted. Hey, but you know what's like theology? But like maybe more persuasive, most important thing is got to be apologetics. Oh, the defense of the faith in a persuasive manner. What could be better than that? 
I mean, isn't this, after all, what we see Peter and Paul do time and time again in the book of Acts? Isn't this how the first sermon went, where Peter has to convince these Jews who don't believe in Jesus, who Jesus is, and then to be baptizing him? I mean, isn't this what is taking place, this sermon of persuasion, this defense of the faith? I mean, listen to it in Acts chapter 2, 32, it says, uh, this Jesus is Peter speaking in the first sermon, uh, this Jesus God raised up. And of that we all are witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. He has poured out this, that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. And then they all responded by being baptized for the forgiveness of sins, the gift of the Holy Spirit. And this is all because of apologetics, the defense of the faith. Or hear how Paul does it in in Acts chapter 17 where he says, listen, men of Athens... I perceived that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. And Paul continues to go on using their own poets and using their culture to persuade them who Jesus is and why they must turn to them. There we go. Apologetics, it must be the clear, most important thing in the Christian faith to persuade people of the gospel message. Oh, but here's the deal. See, I'm actually, I'm trained in this. I'm trained and I am very good at being very, very wrong and making it sound like I'm right. And you might not believe this is very possible. I would imagine all of you have either done or experienced a little bit of both. Hey, Elias, that's my son. Um, And uh, (laughs) imagine we've all experienced this, um, being very, very wrong and yet being very, very convincing. Husbands, uh, if you've ever heard your wife tell you why she needs another pair of brown flats, she was probably didn't need them. But I bet she was very convincing. And wives, if you've ever heard your husband tell you why he needs a new fishing rod, a new truck, a new gun, a new Xbox. Again, I would imagine he was very convincing, although probably also very wrong. And so you can be very, very good at this. The issue is the faith falls on the arguer, not the truth. That's what happens to be wrong with this apologetics. It's a very, very valuable tool, a very, very good thing. But often... The skill of the arguer has more value than the truth itself. And therefore, apologetics, although very, very valuable, it can't be the most important thing to the Christian faith. But you know what can't be manipulated like words? Love, action, right? That's got to be the most important thing in the Christian faith. Proof of love, I mean... It's just, it's just important. It's what we're expected to be. I mean, after all, isn't God love as 1 John 4 says? And I don't mean some sort of like new age infatuation of love. I mean like love as an action. Love as doing good for others. Often we do good whether we want to or we don't want to. Matter of fact, the, the call is to do it for, to your enemies. Matthew 5, Jesus says to love your enemies. My daughter, Zeal, six, and my daughter, Bria, five, are learning a lot of things. Um, My daughter, Zeal, will try to uh, compliment the cooking. She'll be like, Dad, I don't like this chicken. I love it! 
And then uh, my daughter, Bria, maybe a little confused, would be like, Dad, I don't love you. I like you. And I'm like, oh, I don't, I don't know if that's what we, I don't know if, hopefully that's not what you mean. <laughs> uh, you know, but it is, there is obviously a difference between love and like, and sometimes we need to do good deeds, even though we don't necessarily like the person. Often that's what Christianity looks like, doing the irrational thing. Being kind to those who want to hurt you, smiling through it. It doesn't mean you're being fake. Hey, this is key because this is countercultural. Being good when you don't want to doesn't mean you're being fake. It means you're trying to live like Jesus, right? There's a big difference. Often we don't like, but that doesn't mean we're not going to do the right thing anyway. Pure religion is taking care of orphans and widows in their distress, doing these good deeds. As a matter of fact, the gospel of Luke is often called the social gospel because of how many good things it teaches in it. As a matter of fact, in chapter 3, there's this question to John the Baptist, what do you do uh, to have good fruit? How do you produce good fruit, right? That's a good question. And John says, well, if you have two tunics, give one away. Do the same thing with food. If you have extra food, give it away. This is how you bear good fruit. Continue chapter 6, verse uh, 35, it says that uh, don't expect good in return when you do good. You do good for others, don't expect anything in return, right? We're getting some, some shaping to what this looks like to do good, to be loving to others. Chapter 10, the story of the Good Samaritan. You remember this story? This Samaritan comes and he helps this person who's dying, who's, who's Jewish, who's of uh, a different race, a different group, and they usually did not get along. How much did they not get along? Well, Samaritans and Jews would have called each other terrorists. A matter of fact, about the time Jesus was born, uh, this group of Samaritans took a bunch of dead bodies, picked them up, had them taped around their body, put a big clerk, uh, 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 garment over it, snuck into the temple area of Jerusalem, cut the tape, dropped the dead bodies all, all around the temple, and then snuck out. The next morning when they see all these dead bodies, if you don't know, that makes it unclean. They were not able to do many, many religious holy rituals because of these dead bodies now strung all around the temple. This is considered terrorist activity, right? These people were like, this is like 9-11. Like, where were you on 9-11? They're like, where were you when the bodies were dropped around the temple? And then prior to this, the Jews came in and actually destroyed the Samaritan temple. Right? So neither one of them liked each other. There was a lot, a lot of conflict there. And yet this is the example that Jesus says you're supposed to love these types of people. Who? Terrorists. People you would consider terrorists, you're supposed to love them, be good to them, care for them, and not just like wish them well. Why, if you remember the story, he takes them up, he bends his wounds, he mends his wounds, he then brings them to somewhere, gives them a place to stay, gives them food to eat. I mean, the, the, the most amount of love he could demonstrate is what he demonstrated. Certainly love has got to be the most important thing to the Christian faith. In 1 Corinthians 13, it says, love is the best thing, right? Faith, hope, but yet love is the greatest. Paul continues on to say, hey, listen, if you can prophesy, if you know all things, if you can speak the language of the angels, and if you have enough faith to, add, to literally move mountains, those are great things. But if you don't have love, you have nothing. If you don't have love, you have nothing. Certainly love is the most important thing to the Christian faith. Right? Here's the thing. I know you guys are tired of those words. Here's the thing. Doing nice things for people does not inform them of their need for a Savior nor their lost state. No matter how many doors you open or gas tanks you pay for, fill, 
A time of teaching is essential. So just doing good can't be the most important thing. Clearly very important. Don't miss that. But it can't be the most important thing. How we as Christians are kind to other churches show a great deal to the world about what real unity looks like. Uh, But it it can't be the most important thing because it never, uh, because they never hear, if they never hear about Jesus, they are still missing out. We have to at least agree that the greatest action of love then is sharing the gospel. Letting people know about the death, burial, resurrection, ascension into heaven and how we can be a part of that. And then this kind of brings us full circle a little bit back to this persuasion of the gospel, evangelism. That's got to be the most important thing then, right? I mean, Jesus did say, as his, his greatest command, right, or the Great Commission... Make disciples of all nations, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you, and surely I'm with you till the very end of the age. These are the last words he gives his disciples. Then the entire book of Acts is based on that. All the things they do in the book of Acts is based on this command to make disciples. Certainly evangelism must be the most important thing if it inspired the entire book of Acts and the rest of the New Testament. Matter of fact, we see Paul risking his life Time after time again, so he can start and strengthen churches. That's making disciples. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul kind of mentions this thought in passing, but he says, uh, he says, hey, listen, I didn't, I didn't want to take money from you. I didn't want to be a burden on you. I didn't want to take your support. And the reason is, and he says this, because I, I don't seek what is yours, but I seek you. Paul desires the Corinthians. He desires their discipleship. That's what he wants. If that's what Paul wanted, if that's what everything he was doing was going towards, certainly evangelism's got to be the most important thing in Christianity. If you know me well and you know my my life, um, you would probably be like, Brian, it's really not a surprise this is where you landed. But here's the thing. I have a struggle still. Because in Philippians chapter 1, while Paul's in prison and he hears these people, uh, he hears of these people preaching with a bad, sinful attitude. It says that some preach Christ even from envy and strife. And Paul mentions that, you know, they're still doing a good work. A lot is happening because of the preaching of the gospel, but they're doing it incorrectly, right? Like they, they're in a bad place as they do it. And then in 1 Corinthians 9, Paul mentions this. He says, all right. I become a Jew to win the Jews. He's talking about evangelism. He becomes non-Jewish to win the non-Jews. He becomes weak to win the weak. He'll become all things so that he might win some. There's great emphasis on evangelism. Then in verse 27, he says, But I discipline my body and keep it under control, least after preaching to others I myself should be disqualified. So there's this idea that you can do a lot of this evangelistic work and still somehow miss out for yourself. What a sad place to be. If, you, if I spend my entire life trying to do God's work and somehow miss it myself. So evangelism, although extremely valuable and very important, can't be the most important thing to the Christian faith. 
if I still am at risk of losing salvation myself. Here's the thing. Here's the thing. And I hope I can say this clearly enough. And this is moving towards what I actually believe is the most important thing in the Christian faith, all right? So if there's going to be a time to listen, this is it. We often will confuse what people do with what they have become. Are you following? We will confuse what people do with what they have become. And we'll think if we just do what they do, then we'll become what they have become. Uh, when we were in Cameroon, uh, we ran a gym. We, like, we did a lot of lifting weights all the time. Um, and I was, I was bigger and stronger then than I am now. And I, uh, it was pretty obvious that me and the guy I worked with, Jeremiah Hostetter, if you ever know him or meet him, he's a much bigger, taller, stronger guy. Um, it was very clear that we were bigger than all the locals. It was very, very clear. One, we just had better nutrition. We could have more protein than they could. We had a gym to work out regularly at, and we knew what we were doing in the gym. And so this gives us huge advantage. We're just naturally bigger. But because people would see us, they'd say, hey, I want to become big like you. They would do things we do. Sometimes I would go to the store, and I would be buying something like pineapple, true story. And they'd look at me. They'd come squeeze my arm. This is how you got big? I'll take five. Right? I mean, it sounds ridiculous. Right? Like, I ate pineapple, and that, that's, that's how I got strong and big. No, you, know, that's, you guys can see how ridiculous that is. But yet we do this all the time. We will see someone who is a proven, devout Christian, and we, we will hear them clearly articulate a deep theological truth and think, if I could just know theology like him, I will be a mature Christian. Well, here's someone who through time and study and prayer has learned to articulate clearly how to defend the faith. And we will think, if I can just do that, I will be a mature Christian. Oh, we'll see her and you know her. She has sacrificed her, her possessions. She sacrificed her life to serve others and do good. And you think, if I could just do that, if I can be as sacrificial if I can serve as long and as hard, I will be a mature Christian. You'll see the A.J. Laws and the Jeff Hostetters of the world evangelizing at every opportunity. Think, if I could just evangelize like them, I will be a mature Christian. And we're confusing what they're doing with what they've become. And see, what they're tr striving for is to be like Jesus. And in being like Jesus, all those other things that are very, very valuable start to naturally unfold out of their life. I, b I believe that is the most important thing. I want to read a little bit of scripture. Um, is this on, going to be on the screen? We got it, Romans 8, 28. All right. Uh, and we know that all things, uh, we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Uh, for those God foreknew, he also uh, predestined to be conformed to the image of the Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. There's a lot to unpack here, but what I want you to get from this is that for the, uh, those that, God, that, that love God, right, those that love God are being changed to the image of his Son. All right, just catch that. Those that love God are being changed to the image of his Son. Colossians chapter 3, verse 10. 
Uh, it says, uh, Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, uh, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Right? So hear this again, right? The new self is being changed into the image of his creator, right? Being changed into his image of God. Ephesians chapter 4, right, it goes on to say, uh, don't live this as sinful people as you once did. But then verse 22, it says, uh, you were taught with, I'm sorry, I've got the ESV on my thing and I didn't do the right one, so it's messing me up. Um, you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitudes to be new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created uh, to be like God in true righteousness and holiness, right? So when we put on the new self, we're again being changed in uh, to be like God, right? So this is this idea, this idea. And then we have one more verse. Uh, lastly, it's the 2 Corinthians um, chapter 3. Uh, in this section, there's this comparison between Moses, uh, between when Moses met with God and with the Christian, right? Moses had to have his face covered with the veil as he met him on the mount. Um, verse 16, it says, uh, but whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away, right? This idea that the Christian is closer to God than Moses was, kind of a big deal. Um, now the Lord is the spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom, and we all, uh, with unveiled faces, contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into the image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit, right? So the Holy Spirit is constantly, actively working within the Christian to change him into the image of God. It's kind of a big deal. Uh, Irenaeus, in the second century, he's the first person to kind of articulate this doctrine, it's called, he calls it, or it's been called, the doctrine, or Irenaeus' doctrine of recapitulation, right? Now you guys are excited to learn that word. And uh, what this means is, uh, the way he explains it, and I think it makes a lot of sense. Adam and Eve, who created in the image of God, are here. And once sin enters the world, there's a drop. Not, it doesn't mean guilt. It doesn't mean, like, predestined to hell. It just means not like God, not like God's original creation, not like his kingdom person. But then when Jesus comes... Jesus comes back up here. He comes as, as the, we originally created in the image of God. And then he gives us his Holy Spirit, which allows us to start this path up here to this image bearer state. Right? And now we often call this sanctification. Um, the early church called it theosis, and it means becoming like God. And the reason all that's important is because that is how they most often refer to salvation. They said salvation took place when you were on this path of theosis, of becoming like God. Now, often this is a paradigm shift for the Protestant churches because we always see it as like this point in time of where you don't have it, now you have it, and that's it. And they're like, yeah, clearly there's a starting point, right? Clearly that that takes place. They would have all agreed happens when you're baptized into Christ for the forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit, right? But then you continue to maintain this, or you continue to be in this state of being saved. And if ever you, you stop and get out of the state of being saved, you are now rejecting God's plan to transform you into his kingdom person. And if you are rejecting God's plan to transform you into his kingdom person, then how logically can you live in his kingdom with him? 
You're right. Like this is how they articulate it. I'm not trying to argue any theological predestination type uh, things this morning, but just want to let you know how it was understood and explained. And I think it makes a lot of sense. And so the object of the challenge then is how can we most look like Jesus, right? It's not the cliche like what would Jesus do? It's what would I do as a person trying to look like Jesus, right? There's very, there's a very, very clear differences in that. What would I do as one who's trying to look like Jesus? This is not all about um, just overcoming sin. It's about having the temperament, the mindset, the attitude, and seeing the world like God so that we can live as his kingdom person into this world. How can you be transformed? What parts of yourself must you rid in order for God to naturally unfold uh, the rest of these things in it? The evangelism. Uh, theology, the apologetics, the love. Here, I'm going to pray, and then I think Chris is going to come back up.